Welcome to the UC Architects Podcast. This is episode 19, recorded Sunday, March 31st, 2013. I'm your host, Pat Richard, and today I'm joined by Johan Veldis, Tom Arbuthnot, Stahl Hansen, the elusive Paul Cunningham, and Michael Van Horenbeek. So we'll start off with uh, Johan. Tell us what's happening on your side of the world. Yeah, it, uh, well, today it snowed, and it's pretty uh, unique because normally it only snows uh, in December and January, but now almost April and it still snows today. Uh, from business perspective, uh, be busy with uh, Exchange uh, 2010 uh, public folder uh, troubleshooting. A lot of issues, strange issues. And redesigning an Exchange 2010 environment to uh, yeah, relocate uh, the user mailboxes in several databases to uh, optimize the environment. Wow, sounds like fun. Yeah, it is. <laughs> and so has it been cold there lately and this is kind of not terribly yeah, well, uh, different? Yeah, for, for for the time of the year, it's pretty cold. It's below five degrees. Um, and normally it's, it's a bit warmer here uh, around this time. So hopefully it will get better uh, soon because uh, everybody's complaining about uh, the bad weather <laughs> ah well good luck hopefully it warms up for you yeah so tom uh, how are you what's happening good to good to be on again um just trying to think uh, what's happened since i've last been on i've uh, mainly been on a, a 2010 voice project uh, i don't think i've been on since i spoke at uc expo in london which was uh, around the start of march um so demoing all the the mobile clients um, obviously, they're all all public and, and available now, which is cool. Um, yeah, and uh, glad to be on the show again. So, uh, UC Expo, tell us a little bit about that for people that uh, have never been there. Yeah, so that's a, it's a fairly big uh, London event at London Olympia, um, and it's it's UC across the board. So, Microsoft, Cisco, Avaya, Shortel, a bunch of others, all um, kind of with stands and, and various seminars. Um, so Microsoft were there doing their kind of official Microsoft thing. Um, and, uh, myself, Adam Jacobs and Justin Morris, uh, although Justin couldn't actually make it in the end, um, did a, a an event about the mobile clients under the user group banner. Um, so I'm pleased to say we had all the mobile clients running in the session and had a, a flawless demo, which is, uh, is almost unheard of for mobile clients. So I was pretty pleased with that. Yeah. The demo gods were uh, smiling on you that day, huh? Yeah, they were. We had fingers crossed and everything, and it all came together. So have you ever gone to Enterprise Connect? And if so, then how does UC Expo compare? No, so I haven't. So uh, we've got guys in the States as well. So Alex Lewis is the guy who tends to um, go to that type of thing, and he'll be there, I think, this year as well. So uh, it's a kind of a parallel. Um, I think Enterprise Connect is a little more analysty than UC Expo is possibly, um, but the same type of audience, definitely. Okay. Okay. Good. Next up, uh, Stahl, uh, you were at Enterprise Connect, and we'll talk about that in a few minutes. But uh, what's happening with you? Yeah, I'm good. Um, just uh, finishing a week of uh, Easter, so I've been uh, off work. But uh, before that, I uh, I did a um, proof of concept uh, environment uh, within our own um, firm. And I uh, got to play around with uh, Link 2013, uh, with uh, Enterprise Voice and uh, Exchange 2013 integrations, and uh, it was fun. 
good, good. That's my uh, current headache right now is uh, getting those to all talk to each other. Yeah. So uh, as, uh, I'm also up for uh, MVP renewal uh, actually tomorrow. So um, I'm a little bit uh, uh, yeah, yeah, nervous about that. Um, so we'll, we'll see. <laughs> You'll be sitting there hitting F9 and uh, in Outlook for uh, uh, waiting for that message to come in. <clears throat> yeah, refreshing my uh, mobile. There you go. Yeah, active sync. <laughs> <laughs> Great. Well, we're sure you'll uh, you'll make it through the cut there. Yeah, and, and I didn't attend Enterprise Connect, by the way, but uh, I followed it uh, remotely. Okay, great, great. Um, next up, the elusive Paul Cunningham, the only person, I think, from the podcast group who's never been on an episode. So, Paul, welcome to the group. Tell us a little bit about yourself, and uh, and uh, I'm sure a lot of people out there are following and, and have heard your name before, but uh, let us know about your blog and, uh, and what's happening, what you're working on these days. So, yeah, it only took me 19 episodes, how about that, <laughs> to get on. <laughs> well, it's That's not our good. fault. You live on the other side of the world in some funky right, time zone, so... Exactly, yeah. <laughs> I live here in the future. It's Monday morning, so you guys are having a nice Sunday evening, and I'm up early on a Monday morning to be here. But, uh, no, it's great to finally make it on. Uh, I've been, um, yeah, I've been busy as always. Um, I started a new job this year, and so we're still... Uh, I'm still finding my way around a new organization and uh, it's it was a good time to start with them. They've just gone through a lot of organizational restructures, so uh, the infrastructure is changing a little bit as well. So a lot of challenges there for the exchange side of things in particular. And uh, aside from that, uh, mostly I've been working on updating my scripts and trying to uh, iron out the bugs in some of my PowerShell scripts that I publish. Uh, because uh, I want to be able to put the Exchange 2013 compatibility into them uh, as soon as possible after the coexistence updates are released. So I'm hoping to iron out the last of the bugs so I can uh, uh, sort of start from a clean clean perspective with those. And uh, yeah, it's taking up quite a lot of time to, to get to some of the trickier ones, unfortunately, but uh, that's a lot of fun. Great. And uh, for those who um, haven't visited your blog before, what's the what's the address for your blog? Uh, I can be found at exchangeserverpro.com. Excellent. And we'll have a link to that on the summary page as well. So welcome, and we're, we're glad you're, uh, you're finally able to make it. Thank you. And uh, next up, uh, the hardest working man in our podcast group, the guy that does a lot of our editing, uh, Michael... Uh, welcome back. Haven't uh, spoken to you in, in quite a few weeks. What's happening with you? Hey, uh, good to be back. It's It's been a while indeed. Um, I've been extremely busy with uh, work, um, things after work, uh, working on some interesting projects, um, which I can't share a lot of, uh, about right now, but uh, I hope I, I can shortly. So uh, I've had to miss you guys quite a few weeks now, but it's it's good to be back. Looking forward to a uh, good episode and, of course, in, to editing this one as well. Uh, given that Johan had a lot of trouble last time, I couldn't stand leaving him alone this time, could I? Yeah, so for those that uh, question why the, the release schedule has been somewhat sporadic lately, it's because Michael hasn't been available and nobody wanted the monumental task of editing, so... Uh... Johan, we uh, we certainly appreciate you going through the uh, uh, the terror of doing it. So, no problem. It was nice. Only the the last one was uh, pretty much work. 
Well, to be honest, um, when I saw the emails passing by about the work they had to do, I was like, oh, thank God that I couldn't make it. <laughs> I can imagine that. <laughs> Great. Well, we're, we're glad to have you back, and, uh, and hopefully you'll have uh, no issues with this episode. So heading into our topics uh, for this episode, uh, Stahl, you mentioned you did not go to Enterprise Connect, but you wanted to discuss some of the key takeaways for it. Sure. Um, every year I follow Enterprise Connect because uh, it's an interesting arena to uh, get to know not just uh, Microsoft on what they do about unified communication, but uh, as well as the others like Avaya and Cisco and uh, and the other guys uh, that is in the UC market. Uh, so uh, I've been following the No Jitter blog. So if you're not familiar with that uh, blog, you should really get familiar with it if you're interested in uh, unified communication because you get a more um, nuanced uh, view of what unified communication is. And uh, I think uh, Enterprise Connect is a, is a good uh, place for that as well. And um, I think it was interesting this year to see it change from more like the hardware PBX um, um, view from uh, Avaya and, and Cisco and others and over to uh, WebRTC and uh, software networking and uh, they are moving up the stack it seems like. So um, I watched the keynote from for um, uh, Avaya and Cisco and, and Microsoft as well, and um, yeah, they were they were talking about the same same stuff, uh, but uh, they are also moving towards the future and uh, moving towards um, uh, software um, uh, based clients as well, like uh, WebRTC. So um, uh, from the Node Jitter blog. Um, they said that um, uh, unified communication in the cloud uh, is getting more mature. Uh, and uh, Microsoft did their demo from Office 365, which is uh, the, their cloud-based uh, unified communication platform. So, um, uh, yeah, that was probably the main key takeaways from Enterprise Connect. There's probably a lot of uh, else uh, uh, going on on there as well, but uh, that was the high high level anyway. Yeah, I saw a lot of um, social media mentions of both WebRTC and the whole Microsoft versus Cisco battle, uh, Jabber, XMPP, things like that. So uh, it'll be interesting to see how those shake out. Yeah. And uh, I know we're going to talk about WebRTC uh, later in the episode, but uh, now may be a good time to uh, to say uh, what it is. So um, if you're not familiar with uh, WebRTC, uh, it is um, the ability to do unified communication, like uh, audio and video and application sharing, right from the um, uh, browser. So uh, you don't have to use a plugin. You just need to use a web camera, and uh, you can uh, use your microphone, which is built in your PC. And it could be an easy technology to enable uh, all users to um, uh, attend uh, anonymously uh, as customers or or what they are 
to uh, a uh, enterprise grade communication system like uh, link and others are so but it's uh, future tech at the moment um, from what I understand uh, and it's it's a standard that is not ready and uh, we see a lot of the big UC um, vendors moving towards WebRTC and uh, for the moment uh, from a Microsoft per perspective uh, they say they are waiting for the standard to uh, start working before they are uh, diving into it because uh, as you know in Link 2013 um, they um, use this uh, plugin-based uh, approach to uh, to the modalities. So um, yeah, you guys have any um, uh, comments on the WebRTC bit? Yeah, Tom here. So um, yeah, as you say, it was a big a big play in Enterprise Connect was talking about WebRTC, um, and I, th I think we can all agree that no plugins is better than plugins, definitely. Um, so and that's the message that. Cisco and Co seem to be driving that WebRTC is, is the future. Um, but as you say, it's not a ratified standard by, by any means at the moment. It's a, just a working draft, the 1.0. Um, Microsoft have an equivalent, slightly different standard they're pushing called CURTC Web, um, which I think is a similar concept. I don't know the ins and outs of both uh, a kind of RFC level, but a similar idea, basically. Um, but what Microsoft said at Enterprise Connect is when whichever standard is ratified, then they'll be looking at it for Link. So, um, yeah, it's, it's definitely not ruled out for Link, and I think it's probably the right way to go. But when it's a proper standard is when it will start coming to the Link product line from what was said at Enterprise Connect. Yeah, and I was really surprised uh, that they managed to do what they did with the, the plugin-based version as well. So the WebRTC seems like uh, magic, but if it's uh, if it's work if if it's going to work, it would be would be great. So just a close of uh, Enterprise uh, Connect thread, uh, we could um, if you haven't uh, looked into Enterprise Connect before. You should, and uh, the nojitter.com blog uh, is really a place to start. And uh, you also get to see some of the sessions and all the keynotes are there as well. Great, great. Thanks for the info. So next up we have uh, the elusive uh, exchange uh, cumulative update number one, CU1. And who else to talk about that than our elusive uh, podcast member, uh, Paul. So Paul, what do you know about CU1? <laughs> yeah, so this is the uh, Exchange 2013 RTM Cumulative Update 1, which is a mouthful. We'll, we'll just call it CU1 uh, for now. So there's always been a, a shipping target for CU1 of uh, Q, uh, Q1 of this year, which, which finished uh, yesterday or today, depending on where you are in the world. But uh, just last week, uh, Microsoft had to announce that that date is slipping. Uh, only by a few days, just so they can fix uh, a, a problem that they've encountered in their testing and with their early adoption customers. Now, they don't really detail what that uh, config problem is, but uh, they've just said that uh, uh, it could have been fixed by uh, a reconfiguration with Exchange 2010, uh, but instead they've decided to do a code change in the actual CU1 release uh, to cater for it. So it's sort of reminiscent to me of uh, the 2003 and 2010 coexistence where you actually have to go to your 2003 servers and change some of the default authentication for ActiveSync so that uh, um, the coexistence for ActiveSync will work. 
so we don't know what the problem is, but it sounds similar to that. And I guess it would be preferable that customers don't have to go around to their entire Exchange 2010 fleet and do a change uh, just to be able to do that coexistence. So, you know, it makes sense to me that they're doing it this way. Um, it has had a generally positive reaction from the community as well in the comments on the Exchange team blog, but there's obviously a few people who are also a bit upset about that because CU1 was a little bit of a controversial topic for some people. Uh, they weren't expecting CE1 to be a prerequisite for Exchange uh, 2010 coexistence because originally we were only told that Service Pack 3 for Exchange 2010 was what was going to be required and that that would give us coexistence with Exchange 2013 RTM, but that story changed uh, around the release of uh, Service Pack 3 as well. So, you know, it's only two days that they're, they're, uh, that it slipped uh, from the end of Q1. They're expecting to ship it now on April the 2nd, which is... Uh, tomorrow for me I guess but it's in North America where I guess it really counts that's uh, two days from now as we're recording this so you know that's my personal view on is it's not that big a deal it's only another two days but um, guys I don't know if some of you have customers who are eagerly awaiting to uh, the CU1 update so they can do their coexistence uh, and begin deploying and uh, whether that's sort of upsetting to them to have to wait another couple of days to find out the details yeah, well, um, for the customers, or one of our customers that is looking into Exchange 2013, um, they're actually um, saying they'll they'll wait for C1 uh, no matter what. So they won't even take into account the RTM version because of all the fuzz that has been uh, around the RTM, uh, lack of quality, you know, the blog that Michael B. Smith um launched um which is good because um they are informed they know what what could happen um and then yeah you know as you said the communication around the availability of co1 and the requirement of of, of co1 to be able to to go into coexistence um was was uh, to say the least messy um so to comment on that, you know, um, I can understand that that companies do wait for C1, um, even if they don't have to because they have greenfield or whatever reason there is. Um, and I applaud it. Um, and I also applaud the fact that Microsoft took the uh, or had the balls to delay uh, launching C1 because uh, I can believe they are an, under an immense pressure to to release that to the market as soon as possible so that uh, deployments with Exchange 2013 can actually kick off and to make the decision to delay it for even two days um, must have been huge so it's a good thing they take that into consideration that they actually do something about the quality um, but to be honest I do hope they release it um, in two days from now because um, I don't want to know what kind of feedback would come from the community if they keep on delaying for whatever reason there is. Um, so I can think that some customers might become a little bit pissed. Don't know what you think about it. So what about um, Office 365? I mean, has, has anything been heard on, you know, are they testing CU1 in there? Well, as far as I heard, um, you know, uh, Exchange Online and Exchange On-Prem should always be somewhat in sync. So I'd believe they, they'd be rolling it out soon as well, um, but I got no confirmation, um, perhaps any of you guys do, that it's already running in their data centers right now. I would guess that it's there somewhere. Um, the Office 365 data centers have to be huge. I can't imagine that they can take the time to get code out to their 100% of their data, uh, data center servers before they'll release it to the public, but it's probably 
um, feasible that they've done maybe just a small portion of it or some of it before they um, uh, are ready to ship it public. And that's just a guess or some speculation on my part. Yeah, well, uh, I guess you might be right, you know. Um, they'll obviously not run the same bits as the the ones used for the on-prems ins- installations, but um, I can see some features um, that might be in C1 be already deployed a few weeks before uh, it's been released to the public. Uh, although I didn't see any feature change right now at the moment, so um, it's, it's a big guess for all of us, I guess. Okay, well, hopefully, fingers crossed, people can start... Uh their migration projects uh, in the next couple of days. So look forward to hear about, uh, or look forward to hearing about uh, some experiences with that. Moving along, uh, we'll shift to the link side of the the group here. Uh, there's been some uh, discussion lately about how to upgrade your Office web app servers in Link 2013. And uh, Michael, you had some information on that, including uh, identifying um, an interesting uh, uh, tidbit about uh, uh, Office Web App Server Health and what it's reporting. So, what do you have? What do you have on that? Well, uh, first of all, it, it isn't necessarily on the Link side of things because, okay, Link requires Office Web Apps, but we're actually using it for Exchange 2013 to have the preview in OWA. Um, so that's why you need it. Um, but that set aside, um, I think it was this week that Microsoft released an update for Office Web Apps. And um, most of us, if not all of us, were shocked by the procedure that you had to go through to get that update installed because basically what you have to do is to rip out the installation of your Office Web Apps, uh, crush it, and then reinstall it with the update. Um, so you kill your Office Web Apps farm, update the service, and then recreate a farm. And this is by far not the best experience an admin could have. Um, so I'm, I'm, I'm actually shocked that, that is the way to go forward. And I do hope that Microsoft will change something about it uh, in the future. So um, that, that's the first thing. And the second thing that I noticed, um, because we had a project going on recently where we had to use the Office Web Apps, is that when you run the get Office Web Apps machine commandlets to get a status of the machine who is running Office Web Apps or one of your machines in the farm, then there is a um, parameter that uh, gives away the health state of the server um, where Office Web Apps is running on. And I noticed that pretty much every server, regardless of the version, whether it is the old version of Office Web Apps or the updated one, um, is returning an unhealthy state. And up until now, I still haven't found a way to get it into a healthy state. And when you take a look at the TechNet documentation, it's rather um, limited. So... Um, I'm very eager to hear back from our uh, listeners if any of them have the same problem. So if they run the get Office Web Apps machine commandlet on their Office Web Apps form, uh, whether they get a healthy or unhealthy state. And if there is someone out there that has a healthy state, please do share with us what you had to do to get it into a healthy state. So. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see um, if anybody has it healthy. I think uh, just before we started our recording, we did an informal uh, Hole and everybody was showing unhealthy. So look forward to seeing what the results are of, uh, of that. Uh, next up, we have uh, the Link 2013 uh, Rollout and Adoption Success Kit, uh, which was um, released in the last couple of weeks. And uh, Stahl, you've had a chance to look through it and, 
Is it as good as the uh, 2010 kit? Uh, yeah, I think um, this is a, a really good uh, kit for getting started with uh, rolling out and adopting Link in your organization. And um, I haven't used this uh, in a production environment yet, but um, I have used the 2010 uh, resource uh, a rollout and adoption kit, uh, and uh, um, it, this is uh, quite the same thing. But um, the cool thing about this is uh, you really should look into it and get your customer uh, look through it, because uh, then they understand um, the um, factors when rolling out unified communication in an organization. It's a quite complex task and you need to remember uh, to be able to support it to um, uh, enable your users to understand it and help them uh, learn it uh, by um, uh, having um, reference cards which is you have in some examples in in this uh, kit and um, you need to, it goes through uh, how to roll out unified communication within your organization. Organization. I'm not saying that you should use uh, this kit as the only one, but it could be a really good uh, minimum requirement for what you should do when uh, rolling out unified communication. So you get um, the users going and uh, supporting going and uh, every, everyone knows uh, what's uh, involved here. So, uh, have uh, any of you guys had any experience with uh, this kind of uh, uh, resource kits? I haven't used it yet in a client site, but I'm, uh, we're just about to start uh, an, a great big uh, 2010 to 2013 migration project, and I'm looking forward to using this because it does, it does appear to have a great uh, uh, amount of data and information for helping ensure that your, product, your project is uh, successful. And, uh, and for setting everybody's expectations accordingly. So I look forward to using it. Yeah, there is some good checklists uh, that you need to remember, but uh, I really th think you should uh, adopt this to your organization and uh, brand your uh, quick reference cards and make sure that the training is uh, re relevant for the features you, you are deploying in your uh, organization. So I think this is a good starting point, uh, but I uh, also think uh, you should do more than this or adapt it to your needs. Uh, that's uh, I think that's important. Excellent. And while we've got you, um, you've got a script about uh, calling number uh, translation rules. And uh, tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, um, it's, uh, it's not a script, but um, I was uh, happy to... Um, uh, get a, a blog post published uh, on uh, Microsoft Press, the Microsoft uh, Press blog, uh, and it was part of the MVP Monday um, thing that uh, the MVP blog does. And uh, I blogged about um, uh, calling uh, number normalization uh, rule that you have on your trunk configuration. So um, to, to go through that uh, in, a, in a short way, it uh, is a new feature in uh, 2013 where you are able to um, manipulate the number you are showing when dialing out from uh, Link. So um, 
it is useful if you have uh, users that needs to show uh, your main number, your um, exchange unified messaging auto attendant number, or your switchboard number, or um, they are not they they don't want to show the number when dialing out, but still they have the ability to dial out and they have a, a tell URI. So uh, what you can do is um, uh, use this uh, feature, which is. Uh, within the trunk configuration on your uh, pool trunk or uh, side trunk uh, and at the bottom of um, the page in uh, in the link control panel you have the ability to uh, add um, uh, normalization rules or uh, more like uh, regex, regex rules um, to change uh, the numbers uh, going out so I have done this in um, in our proof of concept uh, lab, as well as at the customer site, uh, in the proof of concept lab, we actually did uh, go so far to change the number uh, you're showing out from your um, uh, link number to your mobile number, and um, that's a special case because also the zip trunk provider needs to allow allow you to show a different number. Um, so at the customer. Uh, I did this um, because they wanted to show have a, a bunch of users showing their switchboard number uh, when dialing out. So this is a useful feature uh, and um, it's easy to configure and uh, it's uh, it uses uh, normal link uh, regex rules to um, manipulate uh, the number and um, you have the ability to to change the number you are showing. So I have uh, some caveats uh, using this. Uh, one thing is that um, you shouldn't the users that uh, needs to be normalized, they um, uh, should not have an extension like you have this uh, semicolon a ext uh, equals your extension because uh, then it won't um, normalize uh, and you will show your uh, link number when when dialing out. The other thing uh, which uh, I'm not sure is uh, a, a link thing or because it was in conjunction with a third-party um, uh, call center application within uh, in conjunction with link and um, the thing was that the user was unable to dial out and also do link-to-link -link calls after a while. It was about a week within production and uh, it stopped working. So I'm not sure why it stopped working and, and I need to look into this, but uh, I recommend if you're going to use this feature, you should um, uh, pilot it for about a week or two in, um, uh, in a closed environment for a few users before you roll it out. So as, as I understand what you're explaining, it's the ability to use uh, regex to essentially set the caller ID of outbound calls. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Interesting. That's cool. Uh, it's, it works great. And uh, I created an easy PowerShell script for my deployment that um, it takes the link number and um, um, uh, gets from AD the mobile number and creates the rules uh, for all the users. So it's uh, quite a bit of rules, but uh, it works works fine for all the users. So we'll see within uh, some time if it's uh, 
consistent. So, uh, yeah, you can uh, um, see how to configure it uh, on the Microsoft Press uh, blog post, which we are linking within the uh, podcast uh, blog. Yeah, we'll certainly get it up on the summary page, sure. As will we will with uh, all the URLs for all the topics that we discuss. So great. Well, thanks for the info there, Stahl. Um, Tom, the Link Android client. Uh, a lot of uh, a lot of discussion about that the last uh, week or so, and uh, people have had uh, some some positive experience with it. What do you know about it? Yeah, so this is the uh, the final client to drop. So the iOS client and the Windows uh, Phone eight client uh, dropped a little while ago. So the iOS one is iPad and iPhone. Um, and these are the audio and video clients over 3G and IP. So um, new features for Link 2013. And now we have the Android clients. Um, our, one of our guys, Alex Lewis, has been playing with it and, uh, yeah, said it all kind of works as expected. Um, very much like the other clients, audio and video works fine. Uh, the slight gotcha with the Android client is it doesn't work by default on um, all the different kinds of Android tablets. Um, so officially, I think it's only supported on the phones. Um, if you manage to find the APK somehow, I can't imagine how you'd find that. But if you can find that, I believe you can sideload it onto pretty much anything with Android on. But officially, it's not supported on Android tablets at the moment. Hmm. Okay. I don't have a, an Android test device to, to noodle around with it. And my desk is getting kind of full with all the other test devices. So uh, I'll have to wait and see who else uh, uh, gets an Android uh, device going. So Yeah, I, th- I think the, the nice thing is now is for a long a long while uh, certain vendors mentioning no names have been pushing very hard on their post pc messaging and, and quite rightly so um and saying you know it's all about ipad it's all about mobile devices um and now link can stand head to head on some of those claims where it couldn't previously where we've got full audio and video on those clients and, it, and it even even over 3g surprisingly in the uk it works fairly well um, so three G and Wi Fi both on on all clients. Yeah, I've done some testing with them as well, and uh, one thing I noticed is uh, during testing, uh, no one could stop smiling because it was so so cool, <laughs> and uh, and the quality was really great uh, when testing the mobile client. So it uh, will be um, fun to see uh, how the adoption is going and. And if everyone is remembering uh, that uh, your wireless network needs to be support able to support this real-time communication uh, that is now growing within the wireless network. Really good point on the wireless, and that's becoming increasingly critical for link deployments. So it's something um, modality we're looking at a lot when we do deployments now because people kind of expect wireless to just work, and now wireless is supported in 2013 officially. Um, but you have to be very careful about what that means and having a, a good wireless network for, for real time is different to having a good wireless network for data and frankly most people don't even have a good wireless network for data they just don't really notice um, so Stolle brings up a really good point there that you have to be careful about if you're going to roll out a hundred of these on a floor and, and use iPads for, for audio and video you want to make sure your wireless is up to the task yeah and um I actually experienced the problem with this uh, firsthand uh, at my at my office because I was uh, doing an alien call, and uh, as I use a mobile client, I'm a mobile user. I started walking around, 
and then I got uh, cut off because uh, the handover between the access points uh, is too slow for Link to uh, be able to sustain the call. So uh, I got uh, cut off. I need to dial up uh, a new when uh, I have migrated or, or moved over to the new access point. So this is really a big issue. If you're going to roll out uh, mobile clients, you really need to look into your wireless networks. It's going to be this different kind of usage and more clients and uh, you need to design for throughput and not for um, data access. Yeah, I've had a lot of uh, some comments from users about performance over Wi-Fi for Link 2010. And of course, if you if you dig into the help files in the Link client, it, it clearly says that Wi-Fi is not supported. And um, you know, it's, I'm glad to see that Microsoft is really making uh, putting some effort into making sure that it's uh, supported and works better in uh, 2013 because. Um, the poor performance and the poor support in 2010 was a real killer for adoption um, from from clients. We have internally we have a lot of users who work from home, and their primary network at home is Wi-Fi, and that's always been problematic uh, for for some users. Uh, but in 2013, it seems to be working much better. So I'm glad to see that um, at the. Uh, uh, at the Link Conference um, a few weeks ago in San Diego, Aruba was there, and I believe they are still the only Link-certified uh, wireless provider. Uh, so it'll be interesting to see uh, some more vendors uh, pop up on that list soon. Yeah, and and the and the uh, big thing is um, that the um, network provider or uh, what you call it uh, needs to support. Uh, real-time communication within their wireless networks and they have uh, technology to handle it because uh, it, actually it's not a Microsoft thing, it's a network thing. So uh, being on the list or not being on the list it's not the most important thing. The most important thing is that they actually have the technology and uh, are able to design for it. So, yeah. Yeah, yeah you're right, definitely. So uh, one thing that we saw pop up in the last uh, couple days was uh, Matt Landis came out with um, a blog post about uh, Skype 6.3 and it bringing uh, Skype to Link Voice Federation. And I know he was working real hard on uh, getting some information and uh, testing various scenarios. But if you have Link 6.3 or higher and you're logging into, or I'm sorry, Skype 6.3 or higher, and you're logging into it with your Microsoft account, you can get uh, Link Voice Federation to work. Um, and, and Matt's got a great article uh, that shows you all the caveats and, and how to set it up. So I would definitely recommend taking a look at that if you're interested in getting Skype Federation going sooner than later. Um, has anybody tried this out at all? Uh, yeah, uh, regarding um, the Skype integration uh, and, uh, and Link, um, it is actually possible to try it uh, out now, uh, even though it's uh, not released uh, until June, I think. And uh, and the thing is that uh, Skype integration with the, or federation, uh, maybe you should call it, uh, with Link, is it's done through the uh, MSN uh, infrastructure that uh, Microsoft already has deployed. So that's why you only get to do uh, peer-to-peer voice uh, and chat and, uh, and presence. 
uh, with uh, Skype at this point is uh, it's because they're reusing the MSN Federation um, um, infrastructure they have uh, set up. So for those uh, company that already have uh, MSN Federation set up, and they have uh, a Skype user that is merged with their, with an MSN account, you should be able to actually uh, call from Skype to Link and do a voice call from uh, from your Link client to uh, to Link. So and it and it works for um, 2010 uh, as well as uh, 2013 and um uh, the codec is the same it's uh, g711 i think or G- g722 uh, it is and um uh, that's why it's the least amount of effort to make it work and uh, uh it is um on the roadmap to have uh, video calling and um and you ha- and to have um uh, Skype users joining conferences, but that is on the roadmap because then they actually need to do some uh, changes to how Skype and Link uh, talk together. So I tried it with a uh, with a Skype user, and it uh, the audio is good and uh, it works. Um, and I recommend uh, visiting Matt Landis's uh, blog uh, about uh, how to technically set it up. Uh, and how how it's working and what the feature set is, he's really interested in in this uh, topic, and uh, I'm sure he will uh, expand on it as well uh, when uh, more uh, is being known than his uh, and more is being released about uh, the feature. So uh, visit his uh, blog post about uh, the Skype integration. It's it's going to be cool. Uh, and uh, as we heard in the link conference, it's all about uh, business business to X, where uh, X is the from the living room to the boardroom, and um, uh, and it's easy to add external people to your link deployment uh, without them having to have any other thing than Skype. And since Skype has such a big user group. Um, it's really an important topic to uh, to talk about because um, yeah, it's easy to add uh, external users with them without them having to have link or other communication system. Just use what they use today. And uh, thanks, Dahl, for that. Um, and as I mentioned, Matt Landis has that great uh, post. He's been on the podcast before, and uh, we'll we'll drag him back in here and have him discuss uh, Skype Federation. Uh, in the near future. Next up, we have uh, an announcement by the Link uh, product group. Uh, the Dr. Rez uh, website, the blog site, is going away. Um, and this was kind of a surprise. Uh, they are going to move all of the content over to the Next Hop blog site. So, kind of a, uh, a uh, combination of, of all the content is going to go over there. And that should happen within the next. Uh, couple of weeks, so we should see uh, links uh, to Dr. Rez automatically forward to the uh, next hop site. So, um, thanks uh, to everybody that was involved in uh, the Dr. Rez site. I know uh, I got a lot of information from there, and uh, we'll look forward to seeing um, the additional information over at Next Hop. Michael, you have uh, a script out for how to connect to Exchange Online from uh, from PowerShell. So tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, well, actually, it's it's a little bit updated. Um, it's uh, some 
sometime last year, I uh, put a, a simple script online which uh, helps you connecting to Exchange Online instead of just typing every time the new PS session and then importing that PS session. You could just do a Connect Exchange Online. It'll do that for you. Um, the same thing for disconnecting. But one of the issues that I find myself is that sometimes I'm at a customer that uses a forward authenticating proxy and uh, PowerShell by default uh, doesn't handle that very well. So um, that usually left my other script broken, uh, meaning that I had to work around it manually or uh, bypass the proxy server. And um, what I did now is um, add a switch to the script that if you add the proxy enabled switch to the commandlets, that it'll automatically take the settings from your Internet Explorer and use those to go through the proxy server and connect to Exchange Online. So that should be fairly good news for some of the admins uh, or actually most of the admins in corporate networks uh, it's it's basically a small thing but i saw uh, quite a lot of downloads uh, the last week so i assume it, it must have solved some issues so great great i'll look forward to testing that out too and uh speaking of scripts um paul you wanted to talk about your get dag health uh, script so tell us what does it do and, and how does it help life yeah, so this is pretty. This will be a pretty quick one, I think. Um, the history of it is that uh, uh, Exchange 2010 database availability groups can uh, fail in in subtle little ways that you may not notice uh, immediately. So um, you could have a, a bad uh, content index on one of your copies, or you could have a bad uh, copy on one of your servers for one of the databases. And the thing about a DAG is, of course, it's they're quite resilient and they will continue running. And serving up mailbox data to clients, even with um, some of those little problems hanging around, and you, you, you know, if you're not paying close attention, you could even go a few days without um, without noticing some of these small issues. So uh, all I've done is is write a script uh, which I call get uh, get dash dag health ps one, and it just rolls through your database uh, availability groups. It will do more than one database availability group if you have more than one, uh, and um, checks a whole bunch of different stuff for uh, relating to DAG health and it mostly uses the, the built-in commandlets um, from Exchange for testing those items and then it can output to your shell window or you know, what's slightly better is uh, it can also send a, a HTML um, email report to any email address that you like and it has um, a couple of tables in there with the results and just uses color coding to, to flag uh, possible issues. So you got green for healthy, yellow for things that might be a warning and, and red for things that are, that are actually failed. Uh, so I run that every day in my environment. Now it runs at about 6am and it's something I check first thing in the morning just to make sure that, uh, you know, there's no failed content indexes that the databases are sitting um, on their first activation preference, which is just one example of something that may not be, an actual fault, but might impact other things such as your server workloads uh, or your backup throughput. And uh, yeah, what we found um, from running this was that uh, sometimes DAGs are a little less stable than you think. There was more um, unplanned database failovers going on during the day than we were first uh, aware. And uh, you simply don't notice that sort of thing if a DAG is happily failing over databases because it, it detects you know a little problem uh, here and there throughout the day um, but clients aren't actually reporting any issues to you because there really aren't any 
um, all of a sudden, you know, your dad can fall into quite a state. So just, you know, this is just a simple daily health check. It was one of the most uh, highly demanded features of a script I released last year, which does a general exchange server health check. Uh, so I finally got around to writing it up and, and my plan in the future is actually to merge the two scripts into one sort of gigantic uh, Voltron of a, of a health, health check script for exchange. Um, so that's free to download from my blog. Um, you can find it by searching for uh, Get Dag Health or uh, we'll put a link in the show notes for that one, I'm sure. Um, yeah, and I can testify to that because we're actually using the Get Dag Health uh, script in production and um, the odd thing is that uh, even though our DAGs are running or were running uh, very, very smoothly at the time, the very first time that I ran Paul's script, um, it returned that one of my database copies was, um, was not healthy at all. It had a major high queue length. Uh, I think it was four or 5,000 um, uh, transaction logs that I was running behind. So I was very pleased and I had my use case for the script because I used that output and I went to the IT manager and said, well, hey, this is why we need it. And he said, well, go ahead and use it. And it's been running ever since. Um, and I can even say that it's it's working just fine for Exchange 2013. I did have to make some little changes here and there, but it, it's it's an awesome, awesome script. So um, for anyone wanting to monitor his Exchange environment, you should definitely use that if you're running a DAG. Um, but that, that also brings me to, to something else, Paul, uh, if I may. Um, I read an interesting article earlier this week, and you already said it, that a DAG is sometimes um, less stable or uh, less what you expect, that, expect it to be. And um, I was running into some issues earlier this week at one of my customers. Um, uh, they are running Exchange 2010. And um, I was looking at, through their DAG networks, and um, they were a complete and utter mess. They were totally not configured correctly. And as a result, the DAGs are also behaving uh, a bit strangely. And um, I think it was a day after that Paul launched a, a blog post about Exchange 2013 that he found some quirks in, uh, in there as well. So, um, yeah, that, that brings to attention that... Um, Good, monitor, good monitoring is, is really important. But Paul, um, could you share some of the details on that, on your findings um, so far? With, um, yeah, sure. So with the Exchange 2013 uh, DAGs, there's a new uh, feature, I guess, called uh, DAG Network Auto Config. And the idea with, with that is it's trying to take away some of the administrative effort required to actually configure and optimize those DAG networks. So it's probably not that unusual for people with Exchange 2010 DAGs to have uh, misconfigured or just not optimized uh, DAG networks. So they haven't collapsed um, different subnets into the, uh, the correct DAG, DAG network topology. Um, and that's the sort of thing that can go unnoticed for quite a while too. You can have a perfectly healthy working DAG, even though your networks are misconfigured, which maybe has some sort of invisible uh, replication issues that you're just not noticing, especially if you have multiple networks. So I was playing around with the Exchange 2013, um, with an Exchange 2013 DAG in my test lab. And I had two DAG members at the time and I added a third DAG member in a different subnet because I wanted to see this uh, DAG uh, automatic DAG network configuration in action. And it just didn't work 
properly in my uh, test lab. So when I looked at my um, get, get uh, database availability group network output, there was subnets listed on one of the networks that were uh, listed as misconfigured. Exchange actually presents them in the output as a misconfigured network. And it turns out what I'd done wrong was I just hadn't correctly configured um, the replication network interface on that new DAG member. So automatic network configuration has to make some assumptions or make some guesses about how you want your networks configured in terms of which one is the primary or mappy network and which one's a replication network. And it bases those decisions on your actual NIC configuration. So it looks at things uh, such as which network interfaces have default gateways uh, configured because those should be the mappy networks and which ones are not registered for DNS and are not configured with a default gateway because those ones uh, should be the replication networks. If you get it wrong, like I did, I accidentally left a replication uh, interface registered for DNS, then the auto network config fails or just doesn't get a good result. So uh, I ran through the process of adding and removing and adding and removing that DAG member a few times uh, just to see whether it was consistent. And unfortunately it was not. If you have misconfigured NICs, sometimes the DAG network configuration will automatically um, configure them correctly and sometimes it won't. So this is one of those uh, things that is gonna probably creep up on people or they may not realize it's actually happened. And the fallout from a misconfigured DAG network like this is uh, I had immediately some problems uh, seeding new database copies to that um, uh, to that new DAG member and with the replication health in general. So anyone configuring a multi-network, multi-subnet DAG in Exchange 2013 just needs to make sure that they uh, correctly configure their NIC settings, especially the replication NICs, to make sure they follow the best practices. And I think Microsoft is planning to publish a little bit um, a little bit more information just to clarify some of those requirements. And then the DAG automatic network config should work. Now, if you do find yourself in that mess where you've got misconfigured subnets in your, DA uh, subnets in your DAG networks, it actually turned out to be fairly simple to correct it. Uh, all I had to do was first fix the, the network interface settings that were incorrect. And then uh, I just set my DAG to manual network configuration mode. That fixed everything up automatically. And then I just set it back to automatic configuration mode and everything stuck the way it should. So um, just a precautionary note, I guess, yeah, for people deploying those Exchange 2013 DAGs, pay close attention to your network interfaces, make sure you get it right. And this auto network config actually works really well once you have those settings correct. Excellent information. Thanks. I know I ran into a problem with uh, uh, similar to that in 2010, building out some uh, some complex uh, routing environments for some DAGs for DR, and uh, it was a real head scratcher trying to get those things to work right. So glad to see it's uh, somewhat a little little easier. And uh, Johan, you have uh, speaking of scripts, uh, Johan, you have uh, an iOS script to help uh, deal with uh, the whole iOS uh, mess with Exchange. What's up with that? Yeah, the script has been uh, out for a few weeks now, and the script will. Uh, verify if the mailbox is affected by the uh, iOS uh, calendaring issue. Um, working on a new version which also checks which uh, iOS version uh, is running on the device. So um, users can be informed via an email that they need to clean up uh, the item from their uh, mailbox 
and also make sure their device is up to date. And in the mail, uh, a table is listed where they can find all their iOS devices, including their number, uh, their iOS, iOS version number. Uh, and I related that to, um, to the device type. So if you've got a iPhone 5, for example, it relates that, okay, then you need um, this version to be uh, compatible with a fix. Because uh, what I saw at the customer side was that a lot of users have old iOS devices which can't run the latest iOS version which is available now. And that sometimes um, yeah, results in a lot of uh, help desk calls. So that's why I decided to, to create uh, the script, which yeah, makes, it, uh, makes the help desk uh, life a lot easier because they uh, haven't got uh, much calls about uh, after uh, introducing the script. Good, good. Anything that makes life easier is good. And, yeah, uh, that's true. And, uh, as we've learned, PowerShell can do anything. Almost anything. <laughs> yeah, it can't make uh, updating the WAC server or the Outlook web app server any easier. Um, okay, well, thanks for that information. Uh, next up, we've got uh, two things regarding Office 365. Uh, Microsoft has released um, uh, two papers lately. The first one is around the Office 365 IPv6 testing and what that's going to entail. So if you're on uh, IPv6, or if you're on uh, Office 365 and uh, looking at IPv6 and want to see how Microsoft is going to handle that, uh, there is a white paper available uh, for that, and we will uh, have a link for that on the summary page. Uh, the other white paper uh, is around ITAR uh, service and support with Office 365. So if you or a client um, has to deal with uh, ITAR restrictions, and you want to see uh, what Microsoft is doing from an ITAR perspective within Office 365, uh, there is a new white paper out on uh, with all that information. And so uh, definitely take a look at that. So I, I don't even know what it is. Is it an American standard? So if you're uh, concerned about ITAR, and ITAR is the International Traffic in Arms Regulations, and I what that deals with is how um, sensitive information uh, can be transported between countries. So if you have, if you are dealing with government contractors and they have some sensitive information, ITAR is the rules around um, how that information can be disseminated to people in other countries um, with both within the organization and within, say, partner organizations. So very strict guidelines on uh, uh, what can be uh, disseminated uh, to uh, across country lines and what cannot be. And if you are sending data across those lines, um, what guidelines you have to take to make sure that it's secured. So uh, definitely take a look at this white paper, and um, it should answer most of your questions. Now, um, TechEd North America, the big upcoming event, uh, first week in June, I believe. And uh, I know that uh, some of us are going, uh, Michelle, uh, uh, Justin Morris, Dave Stark, uh, we're, all, uh, we're all going. And uh, a couple of us, I think uh, Justin's uh, presenting some sessions. So is anybody else uh, planning on going to, uh, to TechEd North America? 
No, I guess not. How about uh, TechEd Europe? Nothing. Okay. Well, we're definitely going to be there, and I'm sure that we're going to uh, uh, have something going on down there and definitely see us in our black uh, UC Architects uh, uh, T-shirt. So stop by and say hi and tell us how much you like or don't like our uh, podcast. So we look forward to hearing from you. And, uh, Tom, you wanted to talk about the London User Group. I just wanted to drop in a, a quick plug. So uh, April uh, the 25th, we're doing the, the London News Group. So we do a quarterly news group. Um, and we're doing at the Polycom uh, London office, which is near Liverpool Street. Uh, just from 6pm, and myself, Justin, and Adam Jacobs are all doing sessions. Uh, 6 to 8 and then the pub after, basically. So anybody listening who's in the London area or, or the UK and wants to do a bit of travelling... Um, yeah, we welcome you down, and it'd be good to see you there. Uh, great, great. And um, if you have, if any of our listeners have user groups that uh, that you're a member of, and you'd like to uh, have us mention those and and get some information about, then feel free to stop by our Facebook uh, page, and we can certainly get that information out. So that does it for us this week. We want to remind you that the UC Architects are online. Visit our website at www.theucarchitects.com. If you've got any ideas for topics we can talk about in the future, let us know. Um, you can find us on Twitter at The UC Architects, uh, on Facebook at facebook.com slash The UC Architects, and we have a group, uh, group on LinkedIn. Uh, podcast episodes are available in the iTunes Store, the Zoom Marketplace, and in your favorite RSS client like Outlook. See our website for links to everything. We'll see you back in the next episode with Steve Hosting. And I'd like to thank the co-host for this week, especially Paul Cunningham, who finally made it to uh, to be one of the group here. Paul, uh, thanks for stopping by. We hope to have you here again in the future. And thanks to Johan, Tom, Stahl, and Michael. And I'd like to thank uh, Johan for producing this particular episode and for Michael for editing.